Our next passage is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25. And the primary subject here is how to deal with elders. How to deal with elders, pastors, bishops, overseers. There are different words for the same office. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Father, at this time too, we pray that you'll show us what it means to properly handle this office of eldership. We pray that you'll show us these truths and help us to implement them in our churches. Lord, we want to have godly leaders so that they can be our examples. Help us to follow in their footsteps as they follow Christ. As your word says, imitate me as I also do Christ. May we have such leaders among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 17. 17 to 18 establish the need to also give honor to elders. Remember, earlier in the chapter, he said, honor widows who are widows indeed. Well, honor is also supposed to be given to elders, and here he says double honor. He says double honor to elders. Elders who rule well. Not simply because they hold the office of elder, but because they rule well. They conduct themselves properly, biblically, diligently in that office. They shouldn't be lazy. They shouldn't be those who lord it over the people. They shouldn't be bad examples. They, they must be those who rule well. They conduct their own life, their spiritual life, their family life, their dealings with other people, people in the church, people outside the church. They should be godly leaders, and they must rule well in the church. They ought to be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor. They especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Working hard at preaching and teaching. This is the duty of all elders to be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and even Titus 1, 9, they must be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The teaching ministry, preaching and teaching ministry, is supposed to be the ability of every elder. But especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, they ought to receive double honor. Those who are really dedicated to it, who devote themselves to it, who are pouring themselves into that and helping the others in the church learn and and imbibe everything that they are learning, 
that is the one who is working especially to preach and teach. This office is this important, that they ought to receive double honor when they are doing that. Because where else or how else are the people going to hear the truth of God regularly? Where else are they, they going to hear the truth of God? Yes, they can read books, and yes, they can find it by other means. They can do it that way. But they, what they really need is to see a visible, tangible, personal example of it. That's what the Bible expects. That's why we have local churches. We have local churches so that we can actually see each other, hear each other, touch each other, help each other with tangible needs. And this is the need here. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching are supposed to be giving us the Word of God, feeding us the Word of God. That's supposed to be the main source of truth, main source of hearing God, about God and learning about God so that we might worship and glorify Him together. The local elder, the local pastor, if he's not doing this, then he is not fulfilling his duty. He should rule well and he should work hard at preaching and teaching. And what does that double honor include? Verse 18, For the Scripture says, he proves his point by citing Scripture. Two Scriptures, one taken from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, he, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's taken from that passage. And the second one, The laborer is worthy of his wages, taken from Luke 10, 7 and 8. Moses wrote the first one in Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. I believe this is an adage or a metaphor, that the obvious that the ox cannot be muzzled because the ox, the oxen, they graze. They graze and they have to eat regularly. And we know just as they need to eat when they work, so the laborer, the one who works hard at preaching and teaching, he also needs to eat. So how is he going to eat unless he's compensated? And the ones who are benefiting from it ought to share all good things with him who teaches, as it says in Galatians 6. So the one who is preaching and teaching must not be muzzled. He must eat. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Quoting Jesus from Luke 10. The laborer is worthy of his wages. This is self-evident, is it not? Sure. It's self-evident in nature that oxen need to eat. It's self-evident, even unbelievers know, it's a worldwide universal truth, the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's also a biblical truth. It's, it's obvious that the laborer is worthy of his wages. So why, why stress this? Why stress this? It need, it's needing to be stressed because... People think that the elder or pastor is primarily supposed to be about other things, other duties. When this is his primary duty, this is his own, only proactive, regular, practical duty mentioned in these letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus. The preaching and teaching, both publicly and privately, this is what he's supposed to be about. Because people need to know what the Bible says. People need to know what is the will of God. What is the wisdom of God on this matter or that matter? This decision or that conflict? We need to know. And who's the one going to tell them? Who's the one going to open the Bible? It's the, the one who preaches and teaches the Word. 
And then if he's going to do that, he's going to be available for everybody in his local church, he needs to have income. Right. And that income is showing that that is an important task. It's an important duty assigned by God. He, he needs to be compensated sufficiently so that he can carry out his duties. The laborer is worthy of his wages. But this is where churches disregard it. They disregard those who preach and teach, who work hard at preaching and teaching, and they disregard the compensation of their own pastors. This should not be the case. Amen. This is the way it should be so that there is stability in that position because the Word of God, the regular diet of the Word, is necessary for all the people. Now, how to deal with sin? We're, we just dealt with the godly one, the godly elder. Well, what about the ungodly elder or the suspected ungodly elder? What should be done? Verse 19. <clears throat> Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Do not receive an accusation. Don't entertain. Don't proceed on the basis of an accusation from just one person. Don't receive it from just one person, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Yes, God said in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, 1, that when we deal with church disputes and sinners within the church, it should be on the basis of two or three witnesses. But Paul here repeats this, that which is supposed to be evident from these other scriptures, it's supposed to be evident. He repeats it here because elders or pastors are susceptible to accusations that are false. Yeah. They are susceptible to accusations that are false. And it's often just one person here pops up and says something or says it secretly and then starts a movement on the one side. Or another one in the other corner says something secretly to his friends and then something pops up there. When nobody has any evidence for any of that, it's just somebody who's got a, a big mouth uh, or somebody who's got a lot of influence, maybe because of his age or how long he's been there or because of the money he owns. They pop up and they say things like weeds that need to be cut down. So this is what happens. This is why the apostle has to say about the leader, the elder, don't receive just one accusation and go with that. Don't entertain that. Insist that there's evidence that's presented. Two or three witnesses, minimum. Two or three witnesses. Verse 20. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. There will be those among the elders or among the people, those who continue in sin. When that happens, when they, ha when they persist in sin, when they will not deal with confrontation, when they will not deal with correction, when the witnesses have been brought forth and they won't repent of their sin, they continue in sin. Then it's necessary to rebuke them in the presence of all. Then it needs to be known publicly that this one refuses to repent, therefore we are calling attention to the sin and everyone else needs to know about it. This is like the last step of Matthew 18, 15 to 20, that if he won't listen to the individual 
confrontation and he won't listen to the two or three witnesses and he won't listen to the church, then you, you expel him. You treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. Send him outside of the church. And why? Verse 20, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. So that the rest, we who hear of it, it will be for us a deterrent to the crime, to the, uh, a deterrent to the sin, to the transgression of the law of God. When we hear that they took sin seriously, when we hear that sin was prosecuted properly in the body, then we won't want to practice the same thing. Whether that's in the church or in society, it's the same issue, not, not to practice the same sin. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. What we just read is basically here in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Verse 15, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot." Notice there, it says, in verse 20, The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. When the sinner, the transgressor, the lawbreaker is discovered and he is punished and people hear of that punishment, it serves to deter the sin, to deter the crime. As well, Proverbs 21, verse 11. Proverbs 21, 11. When the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. When the scoffer is punished, he scoffs at the thought that he sinned, and he continues in his sin. He scoffs. Well, but when he is punished, the naive people, the simpletons and the gullible among us, they become wise. They at least become wise in saying, well, I don't want to get punished like he was punished. Yeah. So they won't repeat the sin. This is what he's teaching Timothy. It's necessary in due course, not rashly, but in due course to expose sin so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. It's a good thing to, to not sin against God. Verse 21, 1 Timothy 5, 21. How should this be carried out? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and, and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. 
This is a solemn charge. He's serious about all this. And he says, he charges Timothy in the presence of God, of Christ, and his chosen angels. God, Christ, who is to judge. The Son is given all judgment from the Father on the day of judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And also his chosen angels. His chosen angels, because these are the angels who are witnesses. They're there to help us, but if we sin, then they can be used against us. They can, be, they can withdraw their blessing. They are there in order to help us in re- reference to our salvation. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, they are. But don't we want their favor? Don't we want them to help us? But if we sin, then they won't be there to help us. These are, these are the witnesses. And we're supposed to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Timothy, just as all of us, are supposed to practice justice and only justice. You shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And he says, You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Do not practice injustice. Be fair. Be objective in all your dealings. That was Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. We have a good example of this in Second Chronicles 19. Second Chronicles 19, a good example of insisting on justice. Teaching the Bible faithfully and practicing justice. We have an example of both in one passage. Second Chronicles 19, verse 4. Second Chronicles 19, 4. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you, are, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. And in Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and to judge disputes among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then he charged them, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and wholeheartedly. And whenever any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them that they may not be guilty before the Lord, and wrath may not come on you and your brethren. Thus you shall do, and you will not be guilty. And behold, Amariah the chief priest will be over you in all that pertains to the Lord, and Zebadiah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, in all that pertains to the king. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Act resolutely, and may the Lord be with the upright. We have both civil officials and religious officials. 
who are sent out to judge and sent out to teach the people. They're supposed to do it faithfully, wholeheartedly, without any partiality. They're supposed to be circumspect people. This is the, the thing that he is expecting Timothy and all elders, pastors, to practice. Now, 1 Timothy 5.22. What about the installation of new elders and, and sin in relation to them? Verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. When we lay hands upon someone, when we install the elder or deacon to office, when we do it hastily, we are responsible for the sins that come out of that man. Because we did not carefully inspect, we did not carefully test, we did not do what we were supposed to do beforehand, we should not be associated with sin, we should keep ourselves free from sin. There should be distance from sin that we maintain. Look at chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, in reference to elders and this issue of not appointing someone to office too quickly. 1 Timothy 3, 6. This, uh, the elders, overseers, should not be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The new convert is still overcoming sin. He's not the same as somebody who has been in the Lord for 10 or 20 or, or 40 years. He's not the same. He's still overcoming sin. He has to have some semblance of self-control and the fruit of the Spirit, and that has to be evidence in his life. Then he can be in the service of, of the church and of Christ. And also the additional problem is that he will be become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. On elder or on deacons, verse 10, 1 Timothy 3:10. And let these the proposed deacons and let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Let them first be tested and then let them serve if they are beyond reproach. He expects there to be a careful selection of the men who serve in, in the office of pastor and deacon. Otherwise we are guilty of sharing in the sins of others when we don't practice it. Verse 23 Verse 23 He deals with the personal matter that Timothy faces. No longer drink water exclusively but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He had frequent ailments, and Paul advises him not to drink water alone, but use a little wine. Use a little wine. Timothy, maybe, maybe because of this verse, and also from chapter 4, 1 to 5, maybe he was tempted to go along with those who made too much of food and drink who made too much of food and drink. Remember, in ch chapter 4, verse 3, it says that there were false teachers who were advocating abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. It may be that Timothy 
went overboard in what he was saying and thinking, maybe tempted by false teachers to have a wrong view of food and drink. Well, whatever the case, it caused him, he had frequent ailments. So Paul advises him to take care of himself. Physically, he's supposed to take care of himself. He's supposed to take care of himself so that he can have full strength to work for the Lord. If he's weak, if he, if he does not have proper health, how can he go out and preach and teach? How can he go out and meet people? How can he do those kinds of things if he's not well? So he needs to take care of his own body. And notice he says, use a little wine. A little wine. Not a lot of wine. Not drunkenness. Don't be without self-control with this. Don't become intoxicated, which was already prohibited earlier. 1 Timothy 3.3 the, the overseer should not be addicted to wine. Should not be addicted to wine. So using a little is fine, but addiction and drunkenness is sin in the Bible. Verses 24 to 25. 24 to 25. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. There is a day of judgment, but before the day of judgment comes when God will reveal the secrets of men's heart, as it says in Romans 2, 11 to 16, when He will reveal the secrets of men's heart, or everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. Everything will be held to account on the day of judgment. But many of us don't see that. Right. We don't see the sins of, of others, but in some cases we do. The sins of some men are quite evident, and we see them now even before the day of judgment. They're exposed. Somehow they become exposed, sometimes accidentally, sometimes purposely, because they are brazen in their sin. They'll shout it on the rooftop. This is the way some sinners are. The sins of some men are quite evident. We'll know that. We'll know who's a sinner in that way, explicit way, before the day of judgment. For others, their sins follow after. For others, it won't be exposed until the day of judgment. We don't see it now, but we will see it later on the day of judgment. 25. Deeds, likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident. Not only are sins quite evident, but good deeds are quite evident. Good deeds and sins are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. If there are evil deeds, it's impossible, it's impossible to conceal them. In terms of, can we know who is on the side of Christ and who's on the side of Satan? Can we know that? Does the Bible give us some prescriptions and parameters, some characteristics of those who are for Christ and those who are for Satan, those who are in light and those who are in darkness? He's saying to Timothy, we can know, he says quite evident, verse 24, quite evident on the evil side and 25, quite evident on the good side. On both sides, we can know who is for Christ and who is not for Christ because the Bible here 
and in many other places, as Jesus said in Matthew 7. So then you will know them by their fruits. 7.16 You will know them by their fruits. Galatians 5.16-26 lists the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh. There are passages like this the Bible gives us so that we can know what is obvious. Who's on the side of God and who's on the side of the devil. It's there for us. It's there for our comfort. It's there for our guidance. It's there for our encouragement. How can I know that God is pleased? And how can I know with whom I should be fellowshipping so that I can be built up in the faith? And who should I avoid? Who, can I, who, who should I say, that's a, that's a wrong example, that's bad. And this is why, the Bible says. It's there so that we're not discouraged. Oh, everybody's a Christian. Everybody says he's a Christian. I can't figure it out. That, that's going to discourage people or lead them into indulgence, into sin. And others will say, I can't really find anybody. I don't know anybody. How can I know who's a true believer and who's not a true believer? Because I want to grow. Well, what do you do? You go to the Bible and you see who is living a godly life who is, whose doctrine is in accordance with Scripture, and then you follow them. Follow them. It's there so that we can be built up in the faith and not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. The third thing to, to note here is judgment will come. When we see evil deeds that are quite evident and they go unpunished, we think, oh, it's hopeless. What's the point? He's having fun and he's practicing evil. What's the point? What we need to keep in mind is there is a day of judgment that awaits. And Jesus himself will be the judge of the whole world. Because God has appointed, it, appointed a day and having set aside, having a, appointed a man whom he raised from the dead to be the judge of the whole earth. That will happen. So, Timothy needs to know not to be discouraged, to know the difference between righteousness and wickedness and those who are pursuing it so that he can live accordingly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.